0: For listeners of Stadium Scene's Made Event, you can save 15% by typing in promo code Stadium Scene, that's all one word, at checkout. To learn more, visit linkapp.com, that's L I N Q A P P.com. Today on the show, we interviewed the director of the documentary Requiem for a Running Back, Rebecca Carpenter. The film takes a look at how CTE impacted former NFL player Lou Carpenter and others from that era. Lou played for Vince Lombardi and coached for over 30 years in the league and was not diagnosed until after his death. Oh, and Rebecca happens to be his daughter. Live from a makeshift recording studio, somewhere in the middle of the desert, this is the Stadium Scene Podcast with your hosts. DJ Flug. I suck at trivia and I suck at telling jokes. Kay Thompson.
1: The Jackman, which is just the most awesome name. And
0: Jillian Fisher.
1: No, that was just because I'm crazy as hell.
0: (laughs) You're listening to The The Stadium Stadium Scene Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to episode 32. Uh, we received a lot of comments on our episode 31 with Kelly Tennant last week, and we really appreciate that. Uh, we we really enjoyed ourselves, but we're actually uh, have another guest here, but we'll uh, we'll get to that here in a second. But first, we'll uh, we'll introduce Kate's here with us.
1: Good morning. Or Hopefully, afternoon. you're listening in the morning
0: or afternoon, depending on where you are. And Jillian's also here.
1: Good afternoon, because where I am, it is the afternoon.
0: <laughs> so, Jillian, it was uh, minus eight for you earlier this week. I'm sorry.
1: Uh, it
2: was miserable. It, it felt like three degrees this morning. So, I w- I'm over oh, it already. <laughs>
0: that's unfortunate. Yeah. So, we're going to go ahead. Guy- and- sorry. So, go ahead, Kate.
1: Says the guy in the desert.
0: Yeah, well, it's (laughs) it's actually foggy here that I can barely see out my front window. I've never actually seen that happen here before. But anyway, we'll uh, jump right in. We have a a guest with us here on the Skype line. Um, So today on the show, we have the director of the documentary Requiem for a Running Back, a film that Richard Roper called a brilliant and brave and beautifully honest film. The film focuses on how CTE impacted the professional and personal life a former player and 30 plus year NFL coach, Lou Carpenter. During his career, he played for the Lions, Browns, and Vince Lombardi's Packers and won three championship rings during his time in the NFL. The film takes a more personal turn as the director is also his daughter. Please welcome to the show Rebecca Carpenter.
2: Hi. Hi, you guys. Good Thanks, to be here. Uh,
0: thank you for, uh, for joining us. Um, you know, we. We're talking before we hit the record button that Kate was here visiting last week, and we watched this on Saturday night. And I mean, it was I you know we, I said I really liked the movie, but you know you mentioned that was a weird thing to hear just considering the the material. But I, I you know it was it was fantastic. Um, it was very very well done.
2: Thank you, I appreciate that.
0: So we'll uh, we'll jump right in just the the premise of the movie we mentioned is is you know you connecting with your father he passed away in 2010 and shortly after his death your family got a phone call asking for his brain um can you tell us a little bit about how that came up and what what that led to
2: yeah sure i think there's a misconception um first of all that um people who donate their brains are people uh, of loved ones of former NFL players who think their loved one has a disease. And so therefore they donate the brain in order to have that confirmed. That wasn't true of us. In 2010, the um, study was really a brand new study and they were still trying to find players um, mm-hmm. whose, whose brains and spines they could examine because they didn't know what they were going to find. So at that time, I I think they probably had a flag set, you know, on Google, a Google alert that if an NFL player died, they would get an alert and then they would seek out the family and say what they said to us, which was, you know, dad's obituary went out on the wire, the AP wire, and we got a cold call saying, hey, we're we're starting a new study uh, on the brain and spine of former NFL players to study the impact of concussions. Will you donate your... Your dad's brain is fine to this research project. And we were like, sure, no problem. Dad had never had a diagnosed concussion. We assumed that he was, at least I assumed, I'll speak for myself, that he was a control for the study because he'd never had a concussion. And that was really how it began.
0: And what, you know, what what's it like when you get a cold call just after your father passes away just asking for his brain? I mean, that it's just not... You know, not something you expect to hear. Just like what what went through your, your mind when you got this request?
2: Yeah, of course. So my sister Lisa, who's in the film, um, was my father's medical power of attorney and my mother was managing his estate. So I I you know, full disclosure, I wasn't the one who who um fielded that call. But the, the strange part is is that even though nobody listening to this radio show knows who Lou Carpenter is, um that wasn't true throughout my childhood. So I really, um, probably from the age of 10 until my early twenties, um, there just, it wouldn't be unusual to have all kinds of people make all kinds of odd requests, um, uh, related to my father. So interestingly enough, it really wasn't that strange to have somebody call out of the blue asking for that. Um, because, uh, football fans knew who he was and, um, You know, an example would be like, I probably never had a meal with my father that a fan didn't come up and have an extended conversation with him, one or more. So um, it wasn't that strange in that regard. Um, And then secondly, if you understand that my dad was in professional football for 41 years, then he coached college football for a couple of years after his professional career ended. He was a star, a college star. He's in the Arkansas Sports Hall of Fame and the University of Arkansas Sports Hall of Fame and the West Memphis Sports Hall of Fame. Everything about him was um, dedicated to the love of this sport. So we were really happy that what remained of his body would go to support the sport that he loved. So it wasn't that strange. I know it sounds strange. Um, the part that um, that made me mad and that was upsetting was the part that um, made me make the film, which was, I was mad when we got the diagnosis that he did in fact have CTE.
1: So that was actually gonna be my next question was, oh, um, you. with you not thinking he was gonna be a control subject, it must've been really tough um, receiving the diagnosis of CTE and real, starting to make connections to his life and your experiences with him. Can you talk a little bit about getting that call or getting that information?
2: Sure. I mean, it was one of those things where my initial response was, no, 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 no. Like, who are these people and why are they trying to ruin football? That was my gut response was denial, you know, obviously, Because the best part of my dad was football, you know, I mean, the, the, the most passionate, excited, alive parts of him were the parts involved in football in so many ways. So, uh, my initial response was, was anger and, um, wanting to find out like, what was the agenda here? Because I didn't want to believe it. So that was my initial response. Um, I had a friend who, um, well, I'm, I'll, I'll hold that, put a pin in that for a second. But then my sister and I, Lisa, and we filmed this in the, in the, in the film, you'll see this conversation, um, started thinking like, well, what is this disease? And what are the symptoms of this disease? Because he definitely had a lot of problematic behaviors and, and that grew more pronounced over the years but we had just sort of gotten so used to it. I think when you live with somebody who has Alzheimer's, for instance, before it's diagnosed, there's a phase where you just go, well, why is he so irritating? Or why doesn't he care about me? He always forgets, you know, what I'm doing for a job now or where I'm living or how old my daughter is. And you don't think that this is going to turn out to be a disease. So does that answer sort of your question or is that? Yeah, that does. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah,
0: and there and I'm doing my best here not to to spoil the movie, but I mean oh, yeah. there's a scene early in the movie where you're you're sitting on the floor looking through a collection of books and you're pulling out like uh it was one about like alcoholism and and anger yeah. and I mean yes. was, was this like your family trying to figure out what what's going on here before he passed away or or how did those that I mean, that was a small library of, of books yeah. going through.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you might have figured out that I'm a little bit obsessive as a person. <laughs> <laughs> as as most documentary filmmakers are. Uh, maybe maybe most directors are. Um, really it was me. I mean, my family even thought I was crazy because I'm always so curious about things and I'm so dogged when I when I become curious about something. And I had started studying, um, Gosh, maybe uh, 13, 14 years ago, um, I had started undertaking like a pretty systematic study of, you know, post-traumatic stress or, you know, um, addiction and personality disorders, really trying to understand what was going on with my dad. I mean, I could see that there was something going on. I thought it might be post-traumatic stress disorder um, you know, he, he liked to drink. I, I never saw him drinking and I certainly never saw him drinking to excess if I did see him drink, but I knew he liked to drink. So I thought, well, maybe there's this whole hidden side to his drinking that I don't know about. And, you know, that's what this is. Um, although I hadn't, I hadn't witnessed it. So that was really me, um, trying to understand it and then um there was a period in my life where i got really involved in this um a a title one school and if you know what a title one school is it's a a school that's i would call it a high poverty school um and it was a school in transition and i could observe that there was really a difference between kids who are growing up in scarcity and really high stress environments And kids who were growing up in sort of abundance, let's just say. And they were together in this one school. And um, so I decided to get my master's in teaching at a school, at a college that was really heavily into developmental psychology, in addition to integrating some sort of trauma psychology and um, how to deal with high-stress students. And that really deepened my academic understanding of Um, of trauma and scarcity so a lot of that literature became a new blueprint for me trying to understand my dad because the other thing that you learn in the film is that he did grow up in a very high stress environment which can also shape your personality so that's a really long answer to your question but uh yeah I'm I'm basically I'm curiosity you know is me curiosity are us
0: what, how old do you think you were when you first noticed something was you know, yeah. maybe a little off? Is there a yeah. point, point in your life that stands out to you?
2: Definitely. I mean, we were in St. Louis, Missouri. It was 1972, and um, I was seven. He would have been about 40, and he lost his temper over something that was not, did not warrant. Uh, sort of a rage response. And I had never seen him rage about anything before ever. And he just snapped. And, um, and I just remember kind of going, I don't know who that guy is. That's not my dad. (laughs) I mean, that was my response to it. And just sort of compartmentalizing that. And, um, and he had that and he would have that in certain situations. And it just didn't make sense because he was a guy who lived in a high stress. He thrived on high stress. You know, being a football coach in the in the pros is a it's a adrenaline rush a day. So it just didn't really make sense to me. And and later, um, as you'll see, as people who get to see the film is I I start to meet other families who suspect that their loved one has CTE um, and it starts to turn out that I could literally map, a, I could map them all in the same progression more or less that in their, you know, late thirties, early forties, th- th- they start having these hair trigger tempers across the board. It's the first noticeable symptom.
1: So can we talk a little bit about what CTE is? Sure. Yeah, sure. Um,
0: (laughs) I probably should have hit that earlier on, but (laughs) oh (laughs) oh well.
2: (laughs) Well, I mean, first of all, let me just say I'm a lay person. I'm not a neurologist or neuroscientist, so um, I don't want to um, behave as though my expertise um, in the topic is greater than it is, so that's my my warning. (laughs) Um, CTE stands for chronic traumatic encephalopathy, which basically means... um, something wrong with the brain due to, uh, repeat, um, repeat hits. And, um, how do you diagnose it? Well, you diagnose it at the moment, post-mortem after you're dead. Um, these things called tau, it's a kind of a, um, phosphorylated tau deposit. It's a toxic form of tau. Tau naturally exists in all our brains in a non-toxic form and, Um, something can happen that shifts it to a toxic form and the toxic form will sort of self-replicate and spread almost like rust does. Um, and it shows up in a really specific pattern postmortem, sort of in the shape, essentially of a helmet. It's on the outer, it's mostly on the outer, um, perimeter of the brain. And then, um, if you can imagine sort of the shape of a skull um your brain has little nooks and crannies kind of like little canyons and and valleys and and rivulets in it and the tau deposits will also appear deep in those those crevices um now so hold that image in your head like in the shape of a helmet there are these sort of tau you know gunky icky um sticky nasty proteins that shouldn't be there in the shape of a helmet in a brain a person who has Alzheimer's will also have these toxic tau proteins in their brain but they're almost like often in a, like a splatter pattern like if you took a paintbrush and you splattered it against the wall Alzheimer's often appears more like splat- splatters right um some people have who have ALS um may have a great deal of tau depositions in their motor cortex, which is like kind of in the back bottom part of your brain. Um, and for some reason, the tau decides to um, cluster there and and grow and sort of rust out that part of the brain. All of these diseases are called tauopathies. Um, some people say CTE is a tauopathy. At the moment, some people say it's not. Um, The growing body of work considers CTE a tauopathy, as is Alzheimer's, and some forms of ALS are a tauopathy, and um, so that's what CTE is, a maybe more detailed answer than you wanted, Um, but essentially what it is, is pugilistic dementia in football
1: players.
0: And, you know, you you mentioned that you, you started traveling and, and visiting around with, with other families that ran into this. There was one interview that you sat down with uh, the late John Hilton and his wife. Yes. And, mm-hmm. you know, you asked him a question. And you could see just, just looking at him from, from our perspective as a viewer, you could just see he wasn't all mm-hmm. there. And I, I just remember you, you know, you asked him a question and he started – talking and we ended up Kate and I ended up pausing it and rewinding and going <laughs> back to watch it again and we're like he yeah. spoke for almost a minute and yeah. didn't actually say anything yes what That's- what what was what was that like being in the room you know talking to this this guy who you just you know he's physically there but mentally he's not like what is that what goes through your mind when you're you're talking to somebody like that
2: didn't cross my mind that there was anything unusual going on at all because he was so much like my dad in some ways that um what was weird about watching that footage back in the edit room was um the way that Penny and I so the the interview was maybe 20 minutes long and we showed you I think maybe four minutes of it. Um is uh and that pause, that long pause where he can't answer the question, I that's uncut. I mean, that, that's real time, essentially. Um, and I thought it was really important to, to take that risk of, of letting a very long pause take place like that while he's trying to formulate his answer. Um, but you'll see that there's a section that Penny and I, his wife, Penny, jump in and try to help him answer the question. And um, when we were in the edit room, it became really obvious throughout watching an interview that Penny and I... We're doing that all the time. Now, as a documentary interviewer, you don't usually do that. <laughs> you know, you usually try to let something play out. Um, but I think that John was so familiar to me that it just activated like the daughter, like, oh, let's help him. Let's help him finish the sentence. Let's help orient him to what um, stage of his life or his bookwalker he he might have been talking about just now. And how much we scaffold his, um, his attempt to, to be engaged, you know, how much we tried to help him meet us somewhere conversationally. Um, so yeah, it was kind of, it was kind of like Alice down the rabbit hole because it wasn't strange to me to be there with him. It wasn't until, as you see in the next scene where I realized that that's a guy living in an institution, who's got so much brain damage that he can no longer live at home with his wife. And he was almost exactly like my dad at that point. And we didn't know. It was just heartbreaking.
0: And to me, like when you were sitting down, I and I don't know, maybe this is just, you know, you preface... You know, it's a film about about CTE and brain damage. so You kind of have that. Okay, we're talking to this guy. He probably has brain damage. But I just the first thing I noticed when the camera went on to him is mm-hmm. I could see in his eyes that he just. I don't know if it was a, a focus thing or it just it just something about his eyes stood out to me. Like he's just not all there. Like is that mm-hmm. something that that you noticed even going back mm-hmm. and watching the film or? I, you know, I, I don't know how to really explain that.
2: Yeah, that's a great observation. Um, I would say that that's the thing that I noticed first and that I now after that interview that I really did notice first was sort of a blankness behind their eyes or like a glassy sort of a glassy eyed distant look, even when they're trying to talk, the eyes can't quite make a connection. Um, I see that often now in people who um, may not be talking about being symptomatic. I often see this receded look in their eyes, and I would say that's absolutely a telltale sign, in my opinion. Um, behaviorally, yeah. And you
0: know, and this this wasn't in the film, but I mean, I just watching the film and thinking about players over the you know in the last twenty years or so. I just have this this bad feeling like Brett Favre is going to end up going down the same path. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you just just his career was known for him just taking shots and then coming right back into the game. And there's this you know the infamous play where he was taken out, he was dizzy, didn't know where he was, and he checked himself back in on the next play and threw a touchdown pass. And he came off the field and told his coaches he has no idea what just happened in the last two minutes. Right and you know it's it, it just seems like there was a lot of situations like that in in your father's era and in John Hilton's era and just it's it just I'm glad there's more awareness now but it's just amazing that just it took so long for it to to come into the mainstream
2: Right. well um i think there are a couple things about it um you know i think that you'll encounter a lot of different um groups that have different beliefs about this at, at this juncture in, in football history, I'm probably somewhere in the middle, actually, which is, um, so a couple things. Um, so on the one hand we have the history and the evolution of football. And on the other hand we have the history and the evolution of, of science and scientific research equipment and, and inventions. So the, the first rules of football were created about 150 years ago. And I think it was Rutgers in Columbia. I could be wrong. You guys will have to fact check me on that. But okay. it was it was a college team. It was about 150 years ago. So and it was mostly a game that was played collegiately and they would bring in ringers, you know, from the outside these college teams would sort of enroll great football players to to for football season, essentially. Um, but you really didn't have a lot of players. You know, in terms of sheer numbers, um, really until I would say the 1950s was when um, college football had really taken off and was and was huge. Um, there was this this sort of professional league that was starting to discover how to use television to um, to increase its viewership, and um, so suddenly we started having you know, maybe from thousands to tens of thousands now to hundreds of thousands of young men playing football. So really, in my opinion, my dad is really kind of the first generation of football players where you had enough guys that you could actually assess and observe their behavior late in life enough to start noticing that a lot of them were getting diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's with Alzheimer's, with Parkinson's, right? Mm-hmm. Nobody made that connection. My mom would look at a roster and say, oh, he has Alzheimer's, he has Alzheimer's, he has Alzheimer's, right? These are guys who play from like 53 to 68, more or less. Um, but n- nobody thought about it. It wasn't, nobody made that connection. Now, fast forward, um, suddenly um, Benedict Malu gets this idea that, um, Mike Webster has died, and he's had these sort of odd behaviors. Um, but there's nothing about his brain to the naked eye that suggests brain damage. Um, but also his behaviors didn't fit sort of person personality disorder, meaning, you know, bipolar disorder or some other disorder. It wasn't classic um, it wasn't a classic psychiatric evaluation either. Bennett knew that if you, Dr. Romalu knew that if you um, sliced, you know, that you studied a brain a certain way using certain chemicals, you could see um, tau deposits, for instance. And so he literally bought these chemicals on his own and took the brain home and on his dining room table, started to examine Mike Webster's brain and discovered these tau depositions um, in this unusual helmet shape. So um, so all of a sudden now we have a way of seeing it for the first time, that there might be something unique going on in the brains of football players. Um, so what I would say is that in the last 10 years, suddenly we had these two um, uh, separate strands of events happening. One is to having enough football players still alive with these unusual behaviors at the same time as science has now progressed to the point that we can actually study their brains in a meaningful way, um, suddenly these two events, separate events intersect with the discovery of these tau positions in Mike Webster's brain. And that begins a whole new era of understanding of, of football and what's going on, um, with these degenerative diseases um, as a result of both sub-concussive blows, meaning blows to the head that wouldn't be considered clinically a concussion, and then also concussive blows. So that's that's sort of a long answer to your question, but it's the most, um, it's, it's where I've landed, which is now I go, well, it's pugilistic dementia and football players. We knew back in 1928 like, when Harrison Marlin discovered pugilistic dementia, because of these burst blood vessels in former in the brains of former boxers, that there was something unique happening in boxers' brains, um, but it took another forty years for boxing to be banned in colleges. A, a kid um, in University of Wisconsin Madison was um, boxing in nationals, and he was he was killed in the ring, and um, from a blow to the head, and. Um, and boxing in, in college was banned after that. So people knew about pugilistic dementia a long time before it really affected our perception of amateur boxing. So, anyway,
1: <laughs> how's that? <laughs> Great. Um. Well, not great, but <laughs> yeah. Um,
0: good choice of words there, Kate. <laughs>
1: yeah, no,
2: I. It. It's um, fascinating, though. I mean, I think it's fascinating, and so I can geek, I can geek out about this. And I'm not really sure when when I'm geeking out if it's like if people are tracking or they're going, oh my god, this woman's nuts.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're the ones who are nuts. Yeah, um, our our
0: listeners already know we're nuts, so that's, that's
1: oh, excellent. Fine. Okay, good. Then we're we're all in good company. That's awesome. Um, so. Do you think there's going to be a point in professional football like that boxing match that's going to turn the sport around, like just based on the research you've done?
2: That's a great question. Um, Yeah, I think somebody would have to actually, something catastrophic like that, in my opinion, would, would have to happen to actually impact the game at the professional level. Um, I think we're already seeing um, perceptions are changing at the at the at the lower levels: five year olds, six year olds, seven year olds, twelve year olds playing tackle football. And um, you know, I think that my interest now has really turned away from professional football, although that was my that was the environment that I grew up in and that I came of age in was the pros. I never was exposed to college ball or, or really high school football Um, is that, you know, a five-year-old brain is um, is developing very rapidly. You know um, it's like a little bonsai, you know, and it's, it's like a little, it's like a little sapling and it's growing like crazy. And um, and if you, Hit that brain too many times when it's five and it's growing like crazy um its ability to grow is going to be sort of pruned back like a like a bonsai so instead of growing into a mighty oak it may grow into a smaller still lovely but not as um not as a well filled out um smaller tree let's say um so my focus now would be to say, let's really um, think about whether boys and girls aged five to 13 or 14 should really be exposed to these sub-concussive blows over and over again during this really, really rapid brain development phase where so much of the critical um, neural pathways are being laid down. So. I would really say that flag under 14 is where my focus is now. Um, you know, don't play tackle football before ninth grade. Um, you can still have a fantastic high school career. You can even have a fantastic college career. And you can even have a fantastic pro career um, without that earlier exposure. And then secondly, along those same lines, there's something that, that they call the dose effect. And um, so let's say, I'm making this number up, I'm gonna be really clear that, that it's a 1,000 hits is the dosage that's going to start causing, at which point um, permanent irreversible damage starts taking place. Well, if you start playing when you're five, you might have already had those 1,000 hits by the time you're 14. But if you don't start playing till you're 14, it may take you a decade to have that thousand hits, well then you're 24. So, so if you only play high school football, that's four years, you don't come anywhere near you know, getting up to your dose effect, at which point the accumulated damage starts becoming permanent and irreversible. So again, long complicated <laughs> answer to your question, but I would say grownups should get to do sort of what grownups want to do within the limits of the law. I like doing dangerous things. I think if people want to do dangerous things, they should be allowed to do dangerous things. Um, They should know how profoundly dangerous it is. They should know what this degenerative disease looks like and and what its impact can be on their finances, their relationships, their ability to work, and their most important relationships. And then they can make an informed as possible decision. Um, There are people in football pro football players who say to me, there's no such thing as an informed decision because you, you can't really know how awful this disease is until you're experiencing it. Um, but that's where I am today. That could change, but that's where I am today about it.
0: And, you know, and, and it's, you know, it's not just football. I mean, I, I, I'm in my almost mid thirties now. And, you know, 25 years ago I, I played soccer for a considerable portion of my youth and you know at you know eight nine years old we're doing header drills every practice with you know heading the soccer ball and and I find out from a friend of mine who has a kid who's eight nine years old now and they've they've banned header drills and heading from the game they actually called up if you head the ball during a game they call it as a penalty now Mm because they don't want the kids heading the soccer ball and Mm -hmm. it sure looks like it's for the exact same reasons why they're starting to crack down on youth football
2: yeah that's exactly right it was that's a funny story about that um so my daughter i have a daughter who's a basketball player but she was a soccer player and a basketball player Uh, she's 16 now and um i'm gonna say maybe six years ago i was the assistant coach of her team so i had to go to the coaching clinic you know the annual fall coaching clinic and um robert Cantu. i wish i knew the dates on these things but um it just had a, a story that was on the cover page of the New York Times sports section about um, about brain injuries in children's and youth know, sports and had talked about soccer. So, so then they say in the coaching clinic, okay, now we're going to teach you how to coach heading the ball. So of course I raise my hand and say, like, oh, well, if, you, if you're going to teach us how to teach them to head the ball, are you also going to teach us how to diagnose a concussion? <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. That got quite yeah. a response, I'm sure.
2: Let <laughs> just let me tell you how popular I was for the rest. <laughs> of Why? And also the other thing is like not. And this is sort of aside. There were like 40 coaches there. There was me and one other woman at, at, at the coaching at the coaching clinic. So I had guys come to me saying like. I'm not gonna be a you know P word and I'm not gonna teach my son to be a P word and you know, the guy said, like I drive a motorcycle, I, I play hard and I live hard. And if I go that way, then that's the way it's meant to be. And like all this crazy crap. And I'm like, I'm sitting there looking at these guys like, you have no idea who I am. You have <laughs> no idea what I live through. You have no idea what my life experiences are, you have no idea what my uh what my appetite for risk is but I can guarantee you that my daughter is not going to have the same brain disease that my father did, but she is going to have the experience of how effing glorious it is to compete um, at a high level in athletics. So, you know, go get on your motorcycle and get the heck out of Dodge. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, but now they've, and, and since then, obviously they've changed the rules. So anyway, but that was like a funny snapshot of, what it was like in the early days let's just say
0: so, so as we uh we start to to wrap it up here uh your your film uh, requiem for a running back uh i see that you've been doing a, a tour all through 2018 uh, of various yep. campuses and film festivals so what's yep. uh what, what's the plans for 2019 do we uh are we going to see this on netflix anytime soon
2: that's a great question. You know, I have been really averse to going wide with it on Netflix or or any number of the lovely um, outlets. Because as you guys can see, it's really personal. It wasn't really meant to be that personal, but that was the way it came out. And I also think that it's a disturbing film. I think it's a love story on the one hand, but I do think that people are pretty upset at the end of it. And um, I've really decided that for me, the moral and ethical way to handle this film at the moment is to have these small screenings um, at schools, universities, interest groups. Um, brain uh, brain conferences have have hosted the group. Sports sociologists have post, have hosted the film. Because I want to be there for the conversation afterwards. And I, and if possible, I want to have a neurologist there. And I want to have a, a, somebody there who loves football. Um, so we can really talk about enjoying the sport as much as possible. Um, but keeping your own mind when it comes to being safe. Uh, not taking unnecessary risk. Uh, and uh, so I've really... Been pretty controlling about it. So if anybody out there wants to see it, um, you guys know how to reach me, and you know we can certainly arrange for screeners to be available. Um, you know, uh, there have been uh, professors who teach law who like to use this film for their law and ethics classes. So there's been a lot of different. Uh, another group that um, tends to care uh, that helps caregivers and creates caregiver support groups um, has been interested in the film. So I think that um, for now, small group screenings where we can really um, have a conversation and help people manage some of the feelings that come up um, is really the way to go. So we'll keep doing that in 2019. And um, I don't know if I'll change my mind or not. Um, Yeah, I don't know. That's, but, but it's available and screeners are available if people are interested in seeing it. Great. So I'm yeah. going to
0: uh, hand it over here to Kate. She has her, uh, her five fun, fast facts to learn a little bit more about you. So go ahead, Kate, oh, take it okay.
1: away. Okay, great. Okay. So during right. the interview, you mentioned that you like some dangerous activities.
2: Oh shit. Okay. I mean, oh, oh darn. Yes. Yes. that's true.
1: Yeah. <laughs> What type of activities?
2: Okay, well, let's see. Um, I worked on a on a on a dock in Alaska unloading salmon boats, and when the salmon stopped running, I hitched a ride on a DC three out of Anchorage with a guy who, at the time, was um, working for Air America Freight. <laughs>
1: <laughs> wow, <laughs> I don't what
2: that is! <laughs> so that was like like that was sort of like one chapter, small chapter in my life. Um, I spent uh, part of the summer hiking the highlands of Iceland with my daughter so uh in like you know 35 degree storming rain and fog and uh so I like that kind of thing um yeah I'll stop there
1: (laughs) (laughs) what's your go-to drink at the bar Oh, margarita I like you (laughs) rocks
2: no no salt (laughs) although although I gotta say that um my dad did like to drink Jack and Coke, oh, uh, which is one drink that I did see him. And and now we've renamed the Jack and Coke to the Lou Carpenter and his birthday. And on the day of his death, I always have a Jack and Coke. So, <laughs> uh.
1: First person who comes to your mind when you think the word successful?
2: Wow. It's funny. Yeah. The first name that came to my mind, interestingly enough, was Terrence Malick, who I think is just such a brilliant filmmaker and storyteller and he pushes the envelope on filmmaking so that was the name that came to mind and the second name that came to my mind was mother teresa
1: i think we're on two completely different spectrums for that but yeah oh, yeah. yeah worst piece of advice you have ever received oh god um there've been
2: so many uh, <laughs> Oh boy. Uh, well, I had a thesis advisor in college who, who told me I was a switcher. And by that he meant I was, um, that I was always changing my mind about what I was interested in. And, um, so it wasn't advice. It it was just like, he made that observation as though it was a negative thing. But what I have actually found in my life, especially now with where media is today, um, that a mind like mine that connects. I'm am not a switcher. I'm a I'm a connector, and I like to really find the ways that disparate things are actually connected or similar. And I have a really strong interdisciplinary way of looking at things, and I find that that's my strength as opposed to like my 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 weakness. And I think he was sort of like, stop being a switcher and just focus on one thing. And I was like, yeah, okay, okay, no, okay. <laughs> so, yeah.
1: And finally, what is your life motto? Oh,
2: man. Um, find joy in everything that you do, no matter what it is, no matter how menial or unpleasant. Find the thing in it that can bring you joy. Um, that's it. Period. And if you can't find the joy, then you got to, then you got to walk away from it.
0: Kate, I'm seeing a pattern with the, uh, the answers to that question that we get.
2: Oh, interesting. <laughs> I think what the, is
1: that?
0: Pattern? The, the the Basically the last two people that were asked that question came up with a very, very similar answer. Yeah. So okay, so that wraps up the show for today. So Rebecca, thank you for coming on and talking with us. This is uh, sure. this has been fantastic. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for having
2: me. It's really fun. Do I you appreciate
0: have, it. have uh like to to plug anything your your website, social media?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, the website is www.requiemforrunningback.com. dot com, and if you're interested in seeing the film, uh, there's a. Um, There's a place there that says, bring the film to your town. Also on Facebook, we have a Facebook page, Requiem for a Running Back, and you can send messages to us there and we'll get back to you right away. And, um, yeah. And you know, the other plug I'm going to say is make your movie, tell your story. Technology is, is such now that, um, all kinds of stories get to be told and all kinds of stories get to be heard just like with your podcast. And, um, I would really encourage people who think that their stories aren't important to to tell them because they're really vitally important, actually.
1: Well, I'm gonna go write an autobiography now, <laughs> and maybe you should. <laughs>
2: maybe.
0: Hopefully, you'll uh, have more chapters to to add on to that later. You're still pretty uh, pretty early into that, Kate anyway <laughs> um so everyone thanks for listening be sure to check us out at stadiumscene.tv and our social media at stadium scene on facebook twitter and pinterest i got it right this week and at stadium underscore scene on instagram and thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time